News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So soothing, isn't it? I know. And now we're going to also talk to the very soothing Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Well, we'll give soothing a try. How do I sound? You sound like you're sitting right here in the room with me, which is amazing because I know you're not because you isolate yourself down in your basement. Uh, yes, I'm in my command center here in the provincial <laughs> capital. I've moved upstairs, however, Simi. Uh, I'm not quite as afraid as I used to be of the pandemic. It's a beautiful sunny day in Victoria. Wow. There's your weather report. And, of course, Victoria is uh, lagging slightly behind the rest of the world the way it usually does. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you like it that way. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about the update on this port strike situation. Are we seeing signs of concern out there? More and more politicians saying, hey, we got to do something. Yeah, Simi, I'm looking at a lot of the national coverage on this and you realize as you look at this stuff it is not just about us here in British Columbia so here's the headline this morning on my counterpart at the Calgary Herald Don Braid uh, BC port worker strike a looming economic disaster for Alberta so half a billion dollars worth of stuff from Alberta goes through the two big BC ports Vancouver and and Prince Rupert. Uh, Saskatchewan, the potash industry is already looking at backup places to send potash. 70% of it goes through BC. They're looking at Texas and New Brunswick as backups. Uh, well, automobile industry, I didn't really occur to me immediately, but Ontario and Quebec really should have BC on the radar screen because uh, I see well, several hundred thousand vehicles a year plus parts come in through the port of Vancouver. So, you know, you sh if Ottawa hasn't got the attention of this thing, uh, it should. But again, and I'm noticing this, particularly in Saskatchewan and Alberta, they're making the point that when the Montreal port went on strike in 2021, Ottawa was ready to go and they acted within a day to bring it to an end. Well, what's the difference here then? Well, the feds say, oh, it's, you know, it's different. They say, first of all, that was the pandemic and we were getting medical supplies through the port of Montreal. But second of all, they say the talks there were stalled for months. The minister, O'Regan, said, he was in Vancouver yesterday, he says, no, no, you know, we're still talking here. I still believe the best deals are gotten at the bargaining table. I noticed, Simi, that he met with BC's labor minister, Harry Baines. And if I know the BC New Democrats, I'm sure Harry told them the NDP mantra, get a deal at the bargaining table. And by no coincidence, that's what the union is saying, too. They're saying, Ottawa, please don't intervene. But, Simi, the pressure for intervention has got to be building. Well, it has to be, right? Because you do have uh, politicians in other provinces saying, do something here. Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be interesting. You've got Premier David Eby yes. on. And it would be a departure for the New Democrats to join that chorus saying, government intervene. But I think given the, the central importance of this, not to just the BC economy, although it is, and it's important to consumers too, as we've noted yesterday, you know, that a lot of the stuff we buy comes in through the port. And a lot of the stuff our manufacturers need to make stuff comes in through the port. So 
I think Premier's got to say something about this. Uh, I think he's got some explaining to do if he doesn't join the chorus of voices, voices right across the country saying, Ottawa, intervene, the economy can't stand this. Again, another number. What, a billion dollars worth of stuff goes through the B.C. ports, not just from B.C., but other yeah. provinces every day. What I also don't understand here about the federal government's take on this is, you know, it would take days, as we've been saying, for them to yeah. get up and running if they did decide to intervene. Why not have that at the ready? Like, why why wait until the last minute to do all that? Well, Simi, I have to hope that they've drafted the legislation. I mean, as I said, in Montreal, they were ready to go within a day and they acted within a day. Somewhere in that massive concentration of public servants and lawyers that we know is Ottawa, someone has got to have drafted the back-to-work bill, even if the minister doesn't want to call on it. And you're right, they've got to call back Parliament too. Now, if they call back Parliament to do this, they'll have the votes. The federal NDP doesn't support doing this, but I'd be astonished if the Conservatives don't line up immediately and say, yeah, we'll vote for it, because after all, the Western provinces are leading the call. Western provinces minus BC are leaving the call for intervention. Okay, so do you think maybe they'll get to the one-week mark here? Because we're getting really close to that. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, it takes a couple of days to recall Parliament, so... but. Parliament can sit on the weekend, too, in an emergency. I mean, again, what is the federal minister waiting for? What is the premier of B.C. waiting for? Turning our attention to what's happening in the healthcare side of things. Now, now Vaughn, this is interesting. This, we've had this for a couple of years, but only a couple of communities were doing it. But now the whole province gets a chance to find a family doctor. Well, that's the theory. <laughs> yeah, right. Dick, we'll see how it goes. Dick. Press conference yesterday uh, expanding the access to find your family doctor, uh, expanding it to the whole province. People who've already registered, they'll be able to, well, they, in theory, they will get uh, some offers, uh, some options for that uh, later this summer. Uh, the entire system, though, won't be up and running until. Uh, the end of the year, and I I say let's just wait and see how it works out. You know, Simi, there's a there's a mean political cartoon in the Victoria paper this week. Adrian Rayside has portrayed quote the collected speeches of Adrian Dix. They are on vinyl, and the punchline is, "Help is on the way." Click. Help is on the way. Click. Help is on the way. Uh, <laughs> Look, we're, we're, we need to be patient, as the New Democrats keep telling us, but uh, there was one number that jumped out yesterday, and Dix is a master of numbers. He said, he said uh, what, let's see, there are 900, 900 primary care providers, doctors, and nurse practitioners accepting new patients in B.C., so that's one for every thousand British Columbians that's looking for a family doctor. That's government stats, right? I'm thinking, Simi, if the listener out there is looking for family doctor, he or she is going to be wondering, where are those 900 people? Because it's a nightmare finding them, I gather, even with this website. Well, yeah, and I understand okay, nurse practitioners is a good move too, but yeah. the question does become, as you say, do we even have enough people? It's going to take a few years, and for somebody who's already been waiting a few years for a family doctor, this is no easy quick fix. Yeah, no, I see there's a woman uh, quoted in uh, 
a piece in the sun today by my colleague Katie DeRosa, and she's been looking and she's been looking and, you know, she makes an interesting point. They're going to expand the number of the availability of the ability to look. They're going from a pilot project to the whole province. It's going to take a while. But she guesses correctly that what that means is with hundreds of thousands of people not having a family doctor, more competition for the relatively small number of doctors who are taking more patients. And of course, those doctors are already up and operating. We don't know how many of them are all new. We don't know how many spaces they have, but they're not likely to have enough spaces to address the needs of all the people who need and want a family doctor. Okay, and even though they're, I know they're talking about bringing more family doctors in, yeah. uh, they've got yeah. more people signing up. They seem to put a lot of faith in this new agreement. Yeah, they do, and uh, you know, it it's a step in the right direction for sure. I think the fact that the the number of doctors out there they've reversed the trend for family doctors. So before this deal, what was happening was family doctors were giving up family practice and uh, closing their offices and either retiring or becoming hospitalists, jobs, uh, joining clinics, places where they didn't have to pay the growing overhead of maintaining an office. So they reversed that trend. And that's a good thing for sure. Uh, And you can see it in the um, Surrey's a good example where the hospitalists are now looking for a better deal because the economic incentives for them, some of them, is to go back to being family doctors. So, you know, there's no question that all this stuff is a step in the right direction. You're hearing it uh, from the doctors of BC, for one thing. But still, the timeline on this, uh, it's going to take a long time. And I know you've heard the stories. I've heard them as well. If you don't have a family doctor and you have complex medical needs, more than one condition, chronic, things keep changing, having to go through clinics, having to oh, it's terrible. You know, go through emergency wards, it's terrible. I mean, this is a huge problem for happily not everybody out there but the people for whom this is a problem people for whom their family doctor just shut down and retired right and that happened um and you i heard as well from family doctors who said yeah well they would have loved to have passed their practice on to somebody else there were no takers yeah i talked to a family doctor in victoria who told me that he couldn't persuade his own son graduating from medical school to take on the family practice. You know, dad, there's no money in it, right? Well, also, I I know a couple of young doctors who I asked one of them, like, why not take a full-time job? This clinic needs you because where where my doctor is. And she said, you know what? I I like setting my own schedule. So works as a locum, goes where, you know, works a couple weeks here. And then essentially they don't necessarily want to be tied down. Yeah, no, I mean, doctors are no different from the rest of us. They, They have families, they have jobs, they have priorities. And they look for the arrangement that best suits their lifestyle because, you know, none of us is getting any younger. So, I, again, I wish the minister luck put me down as a skeptic. Yesterday's announcement was another step along the way. If you read the government press release on this, though, Simi, as usual, they oversold it. Uh, another victory lap. We're yeah. a long way from a serious victory lap on this issue. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. 
This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it feels like there are a lot of layoffs happening out there lately, right? I mean, it seems like the news is full of stories of companies laying off workers, whether it's, you know, Bank of Montreal or Rogers, a, a BCE, Nordstrom, Shopify. I mean, you name it, we hear about layoffs. But despite all that, the stats actually show the unemployment rate remains relatively low and, and stable, it seems like. So it's a good time to ask that question, what is really going on with the job market? Are companies holding on to employees or is there more turmoil to come? Well, joining us now to help sort through all of that is Brendan Bernard, Senior Economist at Indeed.com, and joins us now. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what are you seeing in the labor market right now? Yeah, there's an interesting trend over the past year where there definitely have been uh, several high-profile layoffs in Canada and the U.S. You just mentioned a few uh, key key examples. But one of the things that sometimes happens with the headlines versus kind of uh, the rest of the world is that when some companies that everyone's heard of um, uh, make some moves, that, that can drive a perception that uh, might not be the, what we're seeing kind of in the big picture. Uh, so the labor force survey, uh, which is the source of uh, data for Canada's unemployment rate, shows that over the past year, 18 months, uh, the, sh- the number of Canadian employees who are losing their job due to layoff or discharge uh, every month has been pretty low, lower than uh, rates typical uh, for, for uh, uh, the, the typical times of a uh, year compared to sort of pre-pandemic. And this fits in with the low unemployment rate environment that we've been in. Uh, unemployment rate did tick up slightly in May, but for its, it was at 5.2%. Uh, that's well below its pre-pandemic level, and it has been like that uh, for, for over a year now. So a um, bit of a disconnect between uh, the, some of the headlines uh, and, and uh, kind of what the big picture economy-wide numbers are showing. Okay, so then, Brendan, do we need to be concerned potentially about more layoffs? Because clearly the companies are worried about something. Yeah, well, I, I think this is an interesting question because uh, the job numbers that get put out by Statistics Canada, they're a great snapshot of what's happening today, but they're not a leading economic indicator. They don't tell us a lot about where things are going to stand six months from now. And so um, uh, it's good news that uh, the job market is uh, doing pretty well right now. But there, there's definitely uh, um, at least some reason for concern. Um, and, and a lot of that uh, revolves around um, just a sea change in this economic fundamentals of just the interest rate environment uh, that's happened uh, since the beginning of last year. We've gone from a basically a decade of low rates to now one where uh, interest rates are pretty high and companies and, uh, and home buyers and uh, mortgage holders as, as well are, are, are feeling it. And, um, and it, it, in some ways, it had an immediate impact on the economy, especially in the housing market. But if you look at the job numbers, it's kind of hard to point to the point where, say, uh, oh, this is where uh, interest rates really started to matter. So, so we've had this major uh, sea change in one aspect of the economy, and the job market has uh, remained in strong shape. And the kind of question going ahead is, uh, you know, can this last? Uh, it, it's lasted this far, which is uh, good news, but that's no, no guarantee for future performance. Okay, so then what are you looking ahead to? When you talk about leading economic indicators, what are the numbers that you look for to see what's going to be happening perhaps later this year? So one thing I, I do track is the job posting uh, numbers on our website. Uh, that's kind of like on the recruitment side of the employment situation. And, and one reason is that 
uh, when we think about layoffs, companies aren't going to lay off at the first sign of weakness. It's going to uh, because it, it chances it's possible that conditions muddle through, through and they have to re- rehire quickly. But when we look at sort of recruitment activity, which is more of like a forward-looking um, prospect, what we're seeing there is that Canadian job postings have been declining gradually but steadily over the past year uh, or, or, or so. Now, uh, the good news is that in many areas of the economy, the number of uh, opportunities are still pretty elevated. If we looked at range from construction to uh, uh, food services uh, to, to uh, administrative assistance and especially healthcare, where uh, there's a ton of uh, job openings, um, in, in a whole range of areas of the economy, there's still um, elevated hiring appetite. But uh, it's not as hot as it was last year. And so that suggests the market is normal, normalizing, but not kind of in uh, dire straits just yet. I will say one kind of a, mm-hmm. um, exception to that is in the tech world, where um, we have really seen uh, job openings in tech really come down from astronomical highs uh, in uh, midway last year. Uh, but there has been a lot of hiring freezes there. And so that's one area of the economy where, um, things ha- have kind of a cooled, at least in terms of new opportunities. But this is coming from uh, a few years of just a rapid growth. And uh, and so even there, kind of like we're seeing normalization, but um, uh, th- th- that we-, we can live with that. The, the real like question is about the turning point uh, in-, in the labor market where kind of uh, the, it, where we haven't seen it yet, but uh, the potential that sort of uh, uh, conditions actually start going south. And there, I, I'm looking at the layoff rate um, and, and where things have uh, held up pretty well so far, but um, uh, we'll see in the months to come. Well, I wonder then, even with the fewer postings, as you pointed out there, is that perhaps some companies are deciding that they're not going to fill those jobs? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, one thing uh, g- going on where... Um, uh, when this sort of environment turned and rates started to rise and there was more uncertainty in the economy, um, rather than letting workers go, some companies might have just pulled back on their recruitment efforts. And if they had a, lost an employee who might have changed jobs, maybe they uh, decided, okay, well, maybe we won't backfill that position. That, that, but, and so that, that has like... Uh, some impacts on the job market in terms of whether uh, there are lots of opportunities for job seekers. But it's not a shock to the system to the same degree as like actual uh, um, direct layoffs are. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we've been able to sort of muddle through that demand was so hot last year. We're kind of cooling back down to like more normal levels rather than sort of going overshooting and uh, going into right. a really weak territory. Brendan, I wonder, though, do, do employees feel secure in, you know, in the labor market out there? Because it's like, I don't know, is it worth changing jobs right now? There does seem to be some more uncertainty. You've got all these strikes happening. It just feels like a different market. Yeah, and I think um, this shows up in other sort of metrics of uh, economic confidence. I think uh, some the kind of Bank of Canada has a really prominent measure of business sentiment that has also uh, cooled, cooled down a bit. Um, I don't think things are in uh, in dire straits. I think it's more so like a shift back to kind of more normal times after what was kind of like emerging from the pandemic, a pretty like uh, like a, a fast growing, almost like frenzied economy that resulted in a lot of inflation. Uh, things are kind of cooling down now, and we just don't know where where they're going because we've had all these shifts underneath, including this like 
high rate environment uh, that's uh, that's impacting people's uh, uh, decisions. Um, and so, uh, in terms of you know like good time to search for a job, I think I, it, it, there's always a, a, a benefit for searching. But one thing I, I, I have gotten the sense of is that some um, uh, job seekers are sort of. Uh, putting value on job stability as as kind of one sort of aspect of what of of what they're looking for in, in their job search because uh, in kind of like a more more tense environment that's that's kind of a big uh, that's another factor of what makes a good job along with good pay and uh, opportunities for advancement. Mm, that's so true. All right, Brendan, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Brendan Bernard, who's a senior economist at Indeed.com, trying to break down what's really going on in the labor market. Because we hear about layoffs, right? Layoffs in the news, it feels like, all the time. On the other hand, we hear about labor disputes, strikes happening, and then we hear about labor shortages, some industries that are still desperately looking for people, and it just feels more unsettled. Uh, then you know, then maybe we'd been hearing about a year or so ago, and yet that unemployment rate seems quite low and and stable. So what is going on out there? I do wonder if people are thinking about changing jobs. Maybe a year ago, two years ago, you thought, oh, I'm gonna, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to go. This is a good time to do that. Are people's minds being changed about that, given the volatility out there? Would love to hear from you. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I don't want to say summer is usually a quiet time in politics, but I will say summer can be a quiet time in BC politics, but that is not the case right now, is it? Uh, we've got the port strike happening. We've got you know problems with BC ferries, and we've also got housing issues that continue and a housing roundtable that's going to be going on with the federal government. So clearly, we have a lot to talk about with Premier David Eby, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So first off, what is this housing roundtable that's going on? Uh, the deputy prime minister is in town uh, and uh, we're taking the opportunity uh, to sit down with her uh, directly uh, to talk about the housing issue, but also um, to line up a number of people who are uh, expert in housing issues in British Columbia, just uh, to make sure that at the highest levels of the federal government, they're aware of the depth of the challenge that we face around housing. You know, there's so many BC families, so many people who are looking for a place to live, to rent. They're searching Craigslist and they or they, they don't see any way that they could ever get into the housing market. And uh, we're doing uh, a lot of heavy lifting at the provincial government level uh, to address that. We've got new laws coming in in the fall. We're uh, identifying public land that we can use to build affordable housing. We're buying older rental buildings uh, through uh, nonprofit organizations to preserve that housing. And uh, we really need the federal government that has some good programs to, to line up their programs with ours and to make sure that BC gets our fair share. We just aren't getting our fair share of the housing dollars. So hopefully this gives us an opportunity to talk about those um, those ways we can work together to really deliver for BC families and for British Columbians the kind of affordable housing they deserve. Now, is that the message I know that you've said to, this, to them before is that, listen, we're getting more immigration numbers than all these other provinces, but the housing dollars don't match. Yeah, there's a there's a disconnect, uh, unfortunately, uh, with how the federal government housing and it's not just housing, uh, you know, it's economic development dollars and and other pieces. Uh, it was a key theme at the Western Premier's Conference. But I think British Columbians, you know, we we recognize, uh, you know, we're, we're a long way from Ottawa. Uh, we're often not front of mind uh, for Ottawa. Uh, and uh, and the federal government's not as present here as they are in other places like Quebec, Ontario or the East Coast. So what our government has been doing is we've been going face-to-face to Ottawa to meet and build those relationships with the federal government. We've got Deputy Prime Minister Freeland coming out to hear firsthand 
And it's our hope that we're able to reverse that trend and, and make sure at a minimum that we're getting our fair share of federal dollars just based on our population as it is. Uh, but ideally, you know, recognizing that our population is growing really quickly, that BC is a desirable place to live for many people, and, uh, and we think it's the best place to live on Earth. Uh, and so we understand why people are choosing to move here, but we also need that federal uh, government funding to, to follow that to support people when they arrive. So since you've got the Deputy Prime Minister here, you will be chatting with her. Will you be bringing up the issue of the port strike as well and the huge impact that's having on the province? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very likely. And uh, and hopefully uh, we see a fast resolution of this. You know, uh, BC families have seen increases uh, due to global inflation, supply chain interruptions, and uh, and to have the port closed, it jeopardizes people's jobs well beyond the port, uh, as well as uh, as threatens the, to raise prices on essentials. And so, you know, we, we know the port workers have seen those rising uh, costs for them and for their families, too. They need to be treated fairly by their employer. Uh, and uh, we also need uh, their employer and them to recognize how central their jobs are to uh, the prosperity of not just British Columbians, but the whole country, and to sit down at the table and hammer out a deal quickly. Um, and uh, and I'm sure uh, it will be one of the topics I discuss with, uh, with the deputy. What is your approach then to the idea of the federal government doing more, that getting more actively involved and pressuring them back to work? Well, I think anything that the federal government can do to help bring the parties together at the table to reach a resolution that's going to last and that's going to be solid, uh, we need our ports to be working at, uh, at top capacity. Um, British Columbia alone, you know, all of the exports that we have uh, from our natural resources to manufactured goods that leave here, um, all of the things that we import from around the world uh, to make life better for British Columbians uh, pass through the port, and, and that's just us. You know, it's uh, we're the gateway to many parts of North North America to major trading markets in Asia, uh, and uh, and we need the ports to be effective and efficient in how they do that work. And part of that means the deal between the employer and and the workers uh, that's going to last, and the best deal they're going to get is one that they hammer out at the table together. So you would prefer that option as opposed to having the federal government step in. Well, so one of the things that government can do, and, and you know, we have the Fraser Valley transit strike right now. Um, we have a mediator in there that's uh, paid for by the provincial government that's ready, that's, that's hammering, trying, uh, hopefully, to hammer out a deal between the two sides there. If there are opportunities like that for the federal government, they should absolutely take them. Uh, and canvassing the options that are available for the federal government uh, to be able to get that deal at the table uh, is certainly on the agenda for me. Okay, and can we also talk about BC Ferries here for a second too? Because clearly this has been a huge issue over the last couple of weeks. And now we're hearing that another long weekend coming up, you know, the BC Day 1 will also cause problems. Is there something more that your government can do to help BC Ferries? Yeah, I think, you know, when I, I think about families sitting at that uh, ferry terminal and the kids are in the backseat and it's yeah, hot terrible. and you just want to get over there, it's awful. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it, we... Uh, it's uh, the, the ferry system is just part of our uh, highway system for so many families and also for the island, such an important economic driver. The situation at BC Ferries and the delays are not acceptable to me. Uh, and that's why we've made some significant changes uh, in leadership at BC Ferries. We have a new CEO there. We have a new uh, chair of the board. Uh, they have very clear marching orders from government uh, to the extent that we're able to because it's, uh, it's independent from us. But we are able to provide that direction, which is, uh, to get this sorted out. Now, I understand some of the challenges they face uh, around labor, uh, around supply chain that British Columbians are seeing generally and employers are seeing across the province. Um, you know, making sure there are workers to do the jobs and making sure they get the parts to get the ferries running. Um, but uh, but they need to address the long-term 
system-wide issues that have been present uh, long before supply chain disruptions. And I have confidence that we have the leadership there that are going to be able to turn this around. If that requires more funding, is the provincial government open to that? Yeah, one of the things we did was provide uh, um, almost half a billion dollars in funding to BC Ferries to keep fares uh, stable despite rising costs. So they were looking at a potential 30% fare increase for ferry users. Obviously not acceptable for British Columbians already facing rising costs in many different areas. So we provided that funding. I mean, it was over the objections of the opposition who voted against it, of course. I I do need to mention that. But uh, yes, we will provide the support to the uh, BC ferries that they need to deliver this uh, transit for people, this essential transportation in our province. Okay, so that's open then, that that idea that if they need more help, if they come to you and say this is what it's going to take, the government would listen. We've already stepped up to do that to me in in, uh, last year's budget, and we're prepared to do that again. Uh, the critical piece is we need to see the results. Um, and it's not uh, it's not just a matter of money, making sure that the systems are in place. So when we did the reforms at ICBC, it wasn't just about um, the finances. It was about addressing the underlying system. And uh, some of the leadership we had in that turnaround are now uh, turning their uh, sights on uh, BC ferries. And so the underlying system uh, needs to be efficient. But yes, uh, the resources will be there for the ships and the infrastructure and the capital that they need uh, to be able to deliver for British Columbians. Okay, so just getting back to the housing roundtable as well that you're having with the Deputy Prime Minister, um, is there a specific program that you want from the federal government here? Is there a specific way you would like to see them become more invested in housing in BC? Yeah, sure. I mean, big picture, uh, just our fair share of the funding that they're allocating. Um, But we can get really uh, into the details because, you know, when... um, I think the federal government sees the same issue that we do. They're at the table with uh, housing dollars uh, that they haven't been at the table with for a long time. It was a decision made in the 90s that the federal government would get out of housing and uh, and the provincial government as well. And we're living with that legacy now. But I think we all see now, hopefully, uh, that middle income, attainable housing for people who earn a decent income, uh, is, is housing that government also has to support, not just housing for those who are desperately poor. And uh, I think there are probably a lot of listeners right now that are in a decent income and they're looking around at the housing market and, and can't see a way forward. And so um, we have a program, for example, where we provide construction financing for a new rental housing building. It helps bring down the cost of construction and some affordability for rents is delivered that way. The federal government has a program where they provide mortgage financing for newly built rental housing. Uh, and they provide affordability that way uh, through the rent. Those two programs don't work together. <laughs> they're not linked. They're not connected at all, uh, despite the fact that they're uh, so complementary. So, you know, there are lots of examples like that where there's a federal program and a provincial program that aren't talking, that aren't working together. And if they did work together, uh, the tenants in those buildings, uh, without any additional government uh, investment, would see much deeper uh, affordability in terms of the rents that we can offer. And so it's that kind of coordination and, and it's that kind of fair treatment that I think would make a big difference hmm. here in British Columbia uh, for the kind of challenges we face. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking a bit about what's going on in the labor market these days, right? And we heard that there is a bit of a contradiction happening there. And I think one of the reasons why people even consider changing jobs these days is because they think, you know what, I need more time. I need a better work-life balance. Well, there's a really interesting new survey that just came out on this. It's Remote, a global HR solutions company. They released a ranking of the top 10 countries with the best work-life balance. Where do you think Canada came out on that? Well, it turns out, according to Remote, we are in ninth position. So that means that we're 
Okay. I mean, still better than a lot of other countries out there, right? Because they evaluated 60 different countries with the highest GDP on factors such as statutory annual leave, sick pay, maternity leave, healthcare, overall happiness. Number one on this list, the number one country with work-life balance, New Zealand. They had a happiness index of 7.2, work-life balance score of 79.35. By the way, the average work week in New Zealand, and this number blows my mind, is 26.3 hours, and the minimum wage is just about $20 an hour. That's uh, that's pretty darn good, I would say. Uh, let's talk about where we are in all of this. What's Canada's work-life balance really like? Michael Holinsky joins us now, a professor of organizational behavior and human resource management at the Toronto Metropolitan University. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So how much better can Canada do in terms of getting our employees a work-life balance? Well, like any, like any country, like any organization, there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, and if you talk about from a federal level, there can be more uh, incentives and encouragement in terms of uh, better support for employees and encouragement of organizations to offer policies that are family-friendly uh, and not only encourage organizations to offer those, but actually uh, include that in policies that that the government can manage and implement. Okay, what is the benefit to an employer to doing this, though? Well, if your employees have a better work-life balance, they're likely to be happier. They're likely to be more productive. There's a lot more research that if you can, if your employees are are happier, they're more productive. They're less likely to leave. They're going to stay. Um, there's many research indicates many different types of benefits for both the organization as well as the employee. Right. Are are companies thinking about that though? Well, they should be. Over the past couple of years, the Great Resignation has kind of told us that if organizations aren't concerned with leaving people, with people leaving, then they have to be very much concerned with um, how they're going to attract and retain and maintain their productivity. In fact, you know, don't just take existing research for an example. Look at what organizations are currently doing. They're currently trying to offer uh, remote or um, remote workplaces or hybrid workplaces. This is something that organizations are not prepared to offer or not prepared to do from an operational perspective. However, in order to maintain workers, trying to keep and attract workers, they have to do this. So they're not prepared for it, but they are cognizant if they do not uh, meet or come to what employees want in terms of work-life balance arrangements, uh, then they're going to lose their workers. Is that what you think we see happening out there? Like, are people actively choosing a job that gives them better work-life balance? Oh, absolutely. And it's not just the Generation Zs, which some of the reports suggest. It's many different, uh, it's all the generations. We've learned so much over the past couple of years in terms of uh, shifting our values associated with work-life balance, uh, among other things. Uh, And this is something that, at least for the near future, is something that employees are aware of and organizations have to be cognizant over Okay, so when you say in the near future, do you think things could change? The labor market can change, right? Absolutely. Just like it shifted one way, um, it can definitely shift the other way. Think of like the housing market, a buyer's market versus a seller's market. Uh, Throughout the past couple of years, employees could pretty much leave their job and pick up a job anywhere they wanted. Uh, As that shifts and as job mobility decreases, I would suspect that organizations are going to be less generous in terms of their work arrangements that they allow their workers to go into, uh, as well as the offering in terms of the family-friendly policies. Yeah, I wonder if that's starting to happen already. Michael, thank you so much.
Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the fight against cancer is getting better all the time. And we hear that from doctors and from researchers, but it can also depend on the type of cancer. Some types have a higher profile and get more attention, more research dollars like breast cancer or lung cancer. But what about something like bladder cancer? It is the 10th most common cancer in the world. And yet, still, to this day, one of the main ways of treating bladder cancer is to just remove the bladder. But for thousands of Canadians each year who are diagnosed with bladder cancer, is there not a better way? Well, there might be. We're going to talk about that right now. Roger White joins us now, President and CEO of Theralace Technologies. Roger, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Thank you. So tell me about the work that's being done in bladder cancer. Well, the work that we're doing in bladder cancer is we're trying not to destroy healthy cells. The standard of care, as you've pointed out, is a radical cystectomy if the patient is what's called BCG unresponsive. So BCG is a bacteria that was originally developed um, for tuberculosis, Bacillus calmed-garin, and it's the standard of care for treating. So for patients that fail that standard, uh, they're looking at radical cystectomy, so removing the bladder and the associated lymph nodes and vessels and organs, so quite an invasive surgery. So what we're looking to do is to destroy just the cancer, but to keep the bladder and the function for the quality of life of the patient. So we've developed these light-sensitive molecules that have an affinity for cancer cells, so they locate to the bladder cancer cells, not to the healthy cells, and then once they're inside the cancer cells, we can activate them with light, and they destroy the cancer cell without hurting the healthy cells, and the, the patient's in and out in a, in a one-day procedure. Okay, but how do you do that given that in some of these, a lot of these bladder cancer uh, cases, the, the cancer has actually dug itself right into the bladder cancer wall, which can make very difficult to get access well, there's two different types. There's two main types, anyways. There's non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer. So, in our bodies, with our bladders, we have what's called the detrusor muscle, which is surrounding the bladder, and we squeeze that, or we learn to squeeze that as, as children, and we can urinate. So, if the disease has gotten through the mucosa and the submucosa, the, the inner layers, so to speak, of the bladder wall, into the detrusor muscle, then the standard of care is to have the bladder removed. So what we're dealing here is before it gets to that stage, because bladder cancer has the unlikely um, knowledge of, of being uh, very recurrent and very progressive. So before it gets to muscle invasive bladder cancer, we want to try to destroy it when it's in its non-muscle invasive bladder cancer stage. Right. Does bladder cancer get enough attention, do you think? I don't think so. I think that uh, for being, as you've stated, 10th most common in the world, it's sixth most common in men. It's 17th in women. But I don't think it gets really the attention that it does because it's kind of a, a hidden disease. It's, it's something that people really don't know that they have until they, until they start to urinate blood. Then they, you know, something happens, they go see their doctor, their urologist, etc. So it's kind of a hidden disease, and it's not something that people are readily talking about. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the light therapy there, because it seems to me there has been some talk about using light therapy and cancer treatment for, for decades now. But are we getting closer to making this much more effective? Well, I believe so, because the as with any technology, it goes through generations. So uh, this technology has literally been around for about 30 years, but 
the technology that they were using back then, they were using first-generation photosensitizers or photodynamic compounds. So these did not have an affinity for cancer cells. They kind of attacked all cells. And second, they were they had a lot of side effects associated with them. You couldn't go out into the sunlight for a number of weeks or a number of months. Um, and they weren't very definitive of destroying the cancer. Then they went to a second generation. We're now at the third generation uh, technology where we have a targeting mechanism where we can target the cancer cells directly through what's called a transfer and receptor. And I can explain that a little bit if you'd like me to. Yes, please, go ahead. Sure. The, uh, in all of our bodies, um, all of our cells need iron. So we have a protein in our body called transferrin, which transports iron to every cell in our body. Okay? With cancer cells, the difference why they're so dangerous is they're not unlike healthy cells. They just don't go through death or apoptosis when they're supposed to. So they continue to grow and grow and grow and grow through mitosis. So they take over vessels, they can take over organs, and eventually they can kill the host if you don't destroy them. So it's very hard to destroy cancer. Standards of care are to use surgery to try and cut it out or very powerful cytotoxic drugs like chemotherapy or to use radiation to try to destroy it. But all of these methodologies destroy the cancer cells and the healthy cells and also impugn the immune system of the, of the patient. What we're looking to do is to just target those cancer cells. So we target what is most important in a cancer cell is its high mitotic growth rate. So it has a lot more transfer and receptors, they're called, around the cancer cells. So they have 20 to 100 times more. What we do is that iron is very similar to our drug, which is a ruthenium-based drug, and transferrin binds to our molecule, and it transports it preferentially to cancer cells, almost uh, like a Trojan horse, being that the transferrin is the transport molecule that takes it to the cancer cells specifically, not to healthy cells. Once it's at the cancer cell site, and it's been engulfed inside the cancer cell, we can now light activate it to destroy it. So the beauty here is to destroy the cancer, not the healthy cells, and preserve the immune system of the patient. Right. Okay. What does it take to get something like this moving forward, Roger? Like what, Doing this kind of research in Canada, how challenging is it? I think it's very challenging. It's very time-consuming and very expensive. The regulatory authorities, Health Canada and the United States, it's the FDA, uh, they have very strict rules on it. So you have to go through drug discovery, you go through in vitro work, in vivo work. So you're looking with cells, you're working on technology. You have to go through toxicology analysis. You have to go through a number of, of stages, phase one, phase two, phase three. So the whole process for bringing a drug from discovery through to commercialization, uh, they estimate to be about 15 years from start to finish and cost about $1.4 billion U.S. dollars in order to get it there. So it's very, very difficult to get it through. There has to be checks and balances. Obviously, you have to make sure that your drug is safe and it's effective. But I think there's obviously ways that things could be sped up. And I think Health Canada and FDA are doing that. They're trying to address unmet needs and they're trying to address diseases 
which are they don't have a good solution for or the medical community doesn't have a good solution for. So there are different aspects that can move you forward faster in the process, but it's still quite an arduous road. Right. So by focusing on something like bladder cancer that doesn't get as much attention, is that a way to say, hey, hey, we're working on this. We need a bit of a fast track. Um, yes and no. The, in the United States, they, they have fast track, they have breakthrough designation, accelerated approval, and another one called priority review. Um, in the um, Health Canada, they don't have those same uh, terminologies. But there are ways, if you're looking at specific um, groups of patients that are, are what are called unmet needs. For example, in our group, we deal with BCG, Bacillus Calmet, Garin, unresponsive. So patients that have failed standard of care, they're non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and then they have a very high grade of the disease called carcinoma in situ or CIS, which is kind of like a red shag carpet on the inside of the bladder versus a, a papillary tumor. So this is a very specific population. In using that specific population for us, uh, we are allowed, if we're successful in completing our phase two clinical study, we don't have to do a phase three clinical study or a comparator arm study. So that moves us faster. So I think to answer your question, I think you'd have to look at very specific or very rare subsets in order to try to move faster in the process. Well, still it's good news for people who have bladder cancer. So Roger, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen, are we having a public inquiry or are we not having a public inquiry? Because I know so many people in the Canadian public would like the answer to this. It has been an ongoing discussion in Ottawa, it feels like, for months now. And the thing is, people would like to see one. When it comes to the issue of foreign interference in Canada... I think we've agreed and public sentiment has shown that people would like to see a public inquiry to get to the bottom of this situation. So it seemed like in Ottawa there was some consensus on this, that yes, there would have to be a public inquiry. But now you've got the Prime Minister saying, well, yeah, we've got some talks happening on launching a public inquiry, but saying that the Conservatives are to blame for holding up negotiations. Meanwhile, the Conservatives are saying it's not us, it's the Liberal government. So what is really going on here? What is the holdup? And at this point, is it getting to be too late to find out what some of these answers are? Joining us once again is Michelle Juno-Katsuya, who's a former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and the author of the book Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure. What is going on in Ottawa? Why can't we get our act together and get this public inquiry underway? You know, exactly what was the fear that you and I talked about is that it falls into partisanship and somebody trying to score some political points or hide something, one or the other. Unfortunately, nobody knows exactly, well, except the the parties involved, uh, exactly what are the points that are preventing this public inquiry to take place. But it's another demonstration here that from the get-go, the people did not, the, the people, and I mean all the parties, have not started to genuinely wanted to work together and, and, and efficiently. This is a national security issue. Uh, we have to be very prompt because currently the general population is losing trust in its leaders. It's losing, losing trust into the institutions. It's lo- and our uh, uh, allies are losing trust in, in us as well to have the determination to really fix the situation. 
And uh, somewhere, somehow, I don't think the, the, the political leaders are understanding that they are losing points. Every single one are losing points because they're not doing what is the right thing. And if you want to be the prime minister of this country, you're supposed to do what is right for this country, not what is right for you or right for your party. Right. So if you're the NDP and you're the bloc, you're like, yes, let's get on with it. Let's do this. But if you're the liberals and the conservatives, are you a little wary about what the parameters are for a public inquiry? Like if you're the conservatives, you're wondering, well, how far back is this going to go? Is it going to go pre-2015? And if you're the liberals, you're thinking, yeah, we want it to go pre-2015 because they want to spread the blame around, right? And they want to focus definitely on the 2019 and 2021 elections because there is a chronology of events that might embarrass Mr. Trudeau and his uh, uh, cabinet. So unfortunately, that would be sort of diverting again on the uh, issue, which is to protect our institutions, to protect our democratic system, and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But here, it's, again, the people trying to score points because they know that in the near future, we're going into election and they want to try to sort of uh, go in and and score cheap points. Okay, so are we getting too delayed here, Michelle, do you think? Because obviously you want to strike while this is in people's minds, while they think it's important and get that information out there. But it feels like it's kind of drifting. Well, definitely, I would say that Mr. Trudeau wanted it to go into the summertime, especially when he saw that this reporter did not work at all in his strategy to sort of try to sort of uh, uh, kill the issue this way uh, didn't work. So going into the summer, you hope that the people will forget about it and it become a non-issue and other issues will appear on, on the radar and then divert the attention. Unfortunately, it is too important to sort of do that, and it's too important to, to let it go. Mr. Poiliev here at this point is trying to hope to sort of score on Mr. Uh, Trudeau, which has been his favorite target. Uh, everything Mr. Trudeau does is wrong for Mr. Poiliev. So somewhere, somehow, somebody has to be a, 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 a person that wants to lead this country and act for the benefit of this country. So far, so good. I'm extremely disappointed because from a national security point of view, which is very objective and nonpartisan, we need this to happen. Do you see any sign of them moving forward on this? They will have. They will have to move because at one point, it'll, 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 they, they'll, they'll start losing too many points individually. I mean, for Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Poiliev himself. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is all, has already lost a, quite a lot of points because he should have acted way sooner. He could have taken the leadership of this situation. He dragged this feet, and now he has to deal with the other parties when he could have bring them on board right away. As for Mr. Poyev, he's trying, again, to sort of simply uh, 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 appeal to his populist base by sort of shooting at Mr. Trudeau and, uh, and, and invoking that Mr. Trudeau is the obstacle. You're both the obstacle, as, as, as we can see, as Canadians can see. And we need now to sort of move forward. And for this, definitely the Bloc Québécois and the NDP are on board. And unfortunately, none of them will, uh, will get to power. But so far, they're, they're acting really as they should be. Okay, so does that, does that mean that, you know, perhaps this fall we will get things up and running? And, and will that stay in the public's mind? Because it sounds like what you're saying, Michelle, a lot of this is um, incumbent upon us as well, the Canadian public, to make sure we continue to advertise that this is important to us. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we cannot get rid of this issue. This issue has uh, sort of 
went over the border, as I said uh, earlier in the introduction. Uh, our allies are currently watching how we behave, how we deal with this situation. Australia went through exactly the same growing pain back in 2017. They took the, the, the bull by the horn and they gave themselves uh, a, a law. So now the authority are capable to investigate. And it had an impact, a positive impact on trying to interrupt the uh, uh, foreign interference coming from the Chinese mainly for, for Australia, but there's other countries as well. So foreign interference is on, not only the Chinese and others are currently enjoying the right because we're not doing anything. So other countries are also to be watched and to be, we have to be concerned mm-hmm. and we need to act as soon as possible. But they will not be able to avoid having and going further with this. It's just a question of delayed and unfortunately, Okay, they're not calculating the the, the political cost. Okay, so then, Michelle, with your extensive experience in this area, when it comes to a public inquiry, what questions do you want to see addressed and answered? Well, definitely, we want to sort of uh, uh, map out a little bit more what foreign interference is about, which countries are involved, what kind of strategy are they doing, what kind of things are happening, so we can later on draft a law that will define exactly what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Because we need to understand there's a difference between influence and foreign interference. Influence is absolutely legal. It's, co- it's overt. It's done by uh, diplomats here. And it's positive. And we do exactly the same thing in other countries overtly. When you act covertly and you act in different sector, which is to try to dominate your ethnic group in, in Canada or to intimidate uh, uh, opponent, or if you try to steal technology and steal intellectual property, or you go into campus and you influence prof to, and, and steal technology or information or science right there as well, as much as going into the political, as we've seen and we experience, we need to be capable to uh, uh, map out exactly what foreign interference is about. Fortunately, the RCMP has been at work, and they've been, they've been doing quite a nice piece of work as we speak, but they do not have the legal work or the legal tools to be able to be more, much more efficient than they are currently. So at least somebody is doing their job, but definitely uh, we've got a problem here with the, our politicians, and we need to be capable also to probably create a new agency because the but because CSIS for the last thirty years have been trying to sort of warn the the, the government, and they didn't succeed. So therefore, the the chain of command, the way it is currently as we speak, is inefficient and worse can be diverted from its real role. So uh, an independent organization where the director will be named by the House of Commons and will have to report to the House of Commons that ensured us of a less partisanship uh, perspective. And just like the Auditor General, being capable to be much more neutral and serving the country as it's supposed to be. You worked uh, at CSIS and you're saying it didn't work properly. No, it didn't work. I've been there. I've been there for for more than two decades. Uh, I uh, uh, follow for another two decades in the private sector, doing exactly the same kind of job for the private sector. We've seen several uh, uh, operations being totally sort of muted because the government either ignored used or simply did, did the wrong, uh, uh, took the wrong action or the wrong decision. And that was because agents of influence have been capable to penetrate the inner circle that every prime minister since Mr. Maroney. 
and every prime minister have been compromised at one point or another. So if Mr. Poirier wants only to score points against Mr. Trudeau because of the uh, next election coming up in a couple of years, he's short-sighted. And this is not the kind of leadership that we need. We need to have somebody who understands that national security is at stake at, at this point and that we need somebody to be taller and bigger here. Well, thank you so much for your time on this, Michelle. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much.